But what is different is China is taking more of a honey approach than a vinegar approach. It is the week of April 4, and welcome to episode 126 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Harold Moss, visiting fellow at NSI and the CEO of V Fortified, Sarah Stewart, fellow at NSI and executive director of the Silverado Policy Accelerator. Matthew Hyman, a senior fellow at NSI and chairman of the Cyber and Privacy Working Group of the Regulatory Transparency Project. And myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Folks, the world is aflame. Let's start with Ukraine this week. Russia began withdrawing forces from around Kyiv uh, in an apparent effort to reinforce what they're doing in eastern Ukraine. And as that happened, it was revealed to the world that Russian uh, soldiers have apparently engaged in massive atrocities. Uh, we've seen bodies lying in the street uh, in Kyiv suburbs, uh, really appalling uh, pictures and video. Terms like genocide and war criminal were thrown around this weekend with some real apparent validity. Matthew, uh, I want to I go to you first on this question. I don't know that any of us really think this is a terrific surprise given the nature of Vladimir Putin's regime and this unprovoked attack on Ukraine in general. But what does um, this evidence of atrocities mean for uh, the, the war in general, right? Is, are we looking at uh, foreclosed options for the West in terms of, of negotiating a possible solution with Putin? Or uh, is this something that, that we probably built in from the beginning for a strategy? Um, maybe a bit of both, less. Um, I think, you know, the atrocities and, and the pictures and the, and the accounts from journalists on the ground are heart-wrenching. I think we assumed that horrible things were happening. Obviously, the, the latest official tally from the UN of Ukrainian civilian deaths, I think, was around twelve or 1,300. It's going to go way up. Um, and so in terms of how do you cut a deal with a war criminal, um, I think it makes it much harder to work something out that makes sense because no one wants to be seen doing business with a war criminal. But the reality is, whether you look at the prosecution of the war in Chechnya or other places, you could argue that he's been a war criminal for quite a while. And he sits on a massive nuclear stockpile. And and so he's not going away anytime soon. And so I think this was somehow built into the mix, although it's really in your face and ugly. I'm sorry, that wasn't a very eloquent answer, but I don't know what I, I can't figure out what a great answer to that question is, Les. Yeah, there may not be one. Sarah, I, I want to ask you about um, what this means for, I don't want to say China's friends or allies, but those necessarily, but those countries that have not really joined the West in uh, providing assistance to Ukraine against the invasion. I'm thinking of China, some other countries. Does this change their calculus about how those nation states position themselves in terms of the Ukraine war? Well, I think, you know, we'd we'd love to say that, yes, it will. Um, I think there were uh, some results of elections over the weekend in, in Hungary and Serbia um, where, you know, parties that are pro-Russia, uh, you know, had had victories. That is troubling, um, especially because we have, you know, some weeks behind us already where we could assume uh, even without this weekend's reporting on the atrocities that we had anecdotal evidence leading up to that. 
Um, so that is that is very troubling. But you know, we still see, you know, looking back at the March second uh, UN General Assembly vote, I think that was also telling. Um, 141 of 193 countries voted in favor of a resolution demanding that Russia cease military operations. 35 countries abstained, including China. Five countries voted against it. That was Belarus, North Korea, Eritrea, Russia, and Syria, which is pretty predictable. I think there's going to be probably some shifting alliances here. The biggest question in my mind is China and where China is going to inevitably end up here. So far, they have towed a predictably ambiguous line Um, you know, sometimes appearing to be pro-peace, other times, you know, sort of uh, having, for example, Chinese SOEs in talks with Russia to buy uh, the gas and oil that everybody else is, is rejecting from their markets. So that is really the one to watch when we're talking about friends um, and who Russia's allies are. And China has its own, um, you know, recent record of uh, atrocities and and genocide with respect to the Uyghur population. So I'm not expecting this uh, recent uncovering of atrocities to change minds there. Harold, first of all, welcome to Fault Lines. Thrilled to have you here this week. Let me go to you next. What are your thoughts here? I mean, I, this is a pretty dark topic to come in uh, as your first uh, entree into the into the podcast, but eager to hear from you. W- what are your thoughts about this? How does this impact the way, for example, the coalition of nations opposed to what Russia has done? Do they do we change our behavior now? Do we uh, crack down even harder? What's the what are our consequences? That's a great question. I think the reality is we probably will sit and wait. We've taken an approach that's allowed this to happen. We anticipated this would happen, to be perfectly honest. I think, you know, echoing Matthew and Sarah's points. Um, I think that's unfortunate. I think, you know, if I reflect back to the greatest generation and we look at World War I and World War II, I don't think the population would have allowed that in general, what what we're seeing on TV. I think um, seeing people's hands tied on the streets, et cetera, is certainly generating a great deal of frustration with the people, American people and and our allies. Getting back to to Sarah's point on China, I think China's always going to sit on the sidelines. I honestly think it's a tribal one. They're they're evaluating what Russia is doing and experiencing and learning from that as they go forward. And I think that's very risky, um, but I, I don't think we can count on them but I also don't think they're going to get involved in back Russia going forward. So um, at some point, somebody's going to have to stand up. Um, Biden made a comment that, you know, is often viewed as a gaffe um, stating what he believed, which is Putin needs to be removed. And I think the reality is what we're seeing on the ground today certainly highlights the importance of that. And, and there was a time when we would have actually taken the risks that we're so afraid to take right now regarding their nuclear ambitions. So, so I think there is going to be a change. I think there's going to be pressure from average people, everyday people who are horrified by what they see. And, and that's going to be the, the calculus that our politicians have to use to decide what they do. Yeah, I, for what it's worth, I think it's really difficult to imagine how we come to some sort of negotiated solution with Putin that involves any kind of real trade-offs at this point, short of a full Russian withdrawal from Ukraine. That, that option, I think, is off the table simply because, well, not simply because, but in large part because Putin is such an uh, odious figure at this point. You can't, 
you can't cut a deal with this man any longer. It is just, it is, it is beyond the pale and it may be limiting and maybe that's okay. Maybe limiting options for Zelensky in the West in terms of what an acceptable outcome of this conflict is here. And, and, and so I think we're, we're going to get in deeper rather than the opposite going forward. Okay. Quick survey of folks on this call before we go to our next topic. Do you think that this revelation of the atrocities and clearly there's, we're going to see more of them, uh, both things that have happened already we will, will be revealed to us and Russian forces are likely to commit atrocities in the future. Does this change the decision making for NATO, particularly vis-a-vis a no-fly zone over Ukraine? Does that argument gain greater salience because of this? Matthew, what do you think? Yes, I think it moves the needle closer towards uh the imposition of a no-fly zone or a limited no-fly zone or something like that, uh, because because NATO is primarily made up of democracies. And I think, uh, as Harold rightly said, citizens of these democracies are going to put pressure on their governments to do something other than to watch the continual slaughter of the Ukrainians. Sarah? I'd like to believe that, but I actually think that it won't um, just based on our inaction uh, and other scenarios uh, where we're seeing uh, similar atrocities and, you know, the government had has to look at the bigger picture and decide if, you know, making that type of decision is going to escalate it to a point of no return. Harold, what do you think? I actually agree with Matthew. And I say this for a specific reason, which is I think as we start to see more and more footage come out of Ukraine, and we'll start to see children. And, you know, we've largely seen adults and they've been tied up and, and murdered. But when we start to see children, I think that changes the calculus of the population. And I think um, even non-democracies get involved. It's the one thing that I think everybody can agree is children are kind of an absolute red line. Yeah, I think uh, I think I'm coming down with Matthew and Harold on this one, Sarah, which is. Uh, I, I think the, the, there's going to be a, a popular backlash against what Russia has done, although I think it's going to end up coming from the Europeans rather than from the U.S. The, the Europeans, uh, I think the little told story here, it's told a little bit, but maybe not as much as it should be, is that our policy is really trailed behind that of the Europeans in terms of, of how we respond to the invasion of Ukraine. I think that's going to happen again. I think this is really going to impact uh, where Europe's going to go. They've already shown... Uh, a real will, even the Germans have shown a real willingness to change their policies. I suspect this is going to produce something similar. All right, let's um, let's flex to our our second topic, uh, cyber war. Uh, the Biden administration warned a few days ago that Russia may be getting geared up to attack uh, critical American infrastructure using cyber means. We haven't really seen that yet. I think there's a big mystery why it hasn't happened yet. I think a lot of us were expecting it, but so far it hasn't happened. We've got this new warning from the Biden administration. Harold, what do you think this means? Do they know something that the rest of us don't quite know yet? What's what's really happening here? Uh, I think there's a couple things. I, I think one, they do anticipate it to happen. The second thing is, I think it is a call to action for many companies. So particularly in the cyber and uh, the critical infrastructure space, we haven't invested enough in cybersecurity. Uh, there's challenges with the way we do cybersecurity versus how certain other nations do it. Um, China, for example, and Russia, where they're state controlled and they can influence a lot more than you have independent com- companies that are trying to do these things. If you look at the space today, I think there's a shortage of cyber experts and that's complicating things as well. So uh, I think he sees this as an opportunity to engage the country and start to put controls in place. 
But we know they've been probing for years. So this should not be a shock, to be perfectly honest. Sarah, I I saw some news uh, a few days ago that China may have helped Russia in the in the build up to the invasion by launching cyber attacks on Ukraine before the invasion actually happened. If that's true, how should we we the United States be reacting to that? Yeah, this is a great question. I think that some of the facts are still developing, but um, as I understand it, um, this was largely an espionage action versus a destructive measure. And so I think we need to be very careful about really understanding what the facts are and then calibrating, you know, any response. And that could be no response accordingly. Um, You know, we're at a very, very tense time. And so, you know, being sure that we are deliberate in in how we respond or don't respond could mean the difference between, you know, as I said before, kind of getting to that point of no return and really escalating things, especially vis-a-vis China. So uh, at the moment, my understanding is that this was more of an espionage move and we should probably work on, you know, helping Ukraine with defensive measures versus going on the offensive here. Matthew, um, one of the things that another thing that struck me after uh, the Biden administration kind of was was talking publicly about the need for American companies to get ready for attacks and American individuals. Some folks were criticizing the administration for kind of putting the onus on the private sector, if you will, to defend itself. Is that is that an appropriate reaction to what the Biden administration is saying? I have to say, like my personal reaction was, well, heck, yeah, private companies ought to be able to take steps themselves to protect themselves. And maybe it's good for the administration to remind them. Didn't seem inappropriate to me. Feel free to disagree with me. What's your take? On the one hand, I I think it's appropriate for the administration to remind people, uh, to remind companies of what good cyber defense practices look like. And if you go to the website that outlines it, there's not a whole lot new there. I mean, it's, it's all the, you know, be aware of all your endpoints that reach the internet. Well, that's good company practice today. Use multi-factor authentication. Well, that's, that's basic blocking and tackling these days. I think the thing, uh, to the extent that the criticism is focused on this idea that, well, you surely don't expect U.S. companies to defend themselves against state-sponsored actors. I think to the extent that that's the criticism, I think there's some justification to that. I mean, asking any individual company, and let's remind ourselves, when we talk about companies, they're not all Microsoft or Alphabet or Apple. Asking you know, a regional company to be able to def- harden its defenses against Soviet or Iranian or North Korean malefactors seems, you know, sort of a a stretch. And so if that's the criticism, I get it. But I think also just continually beating into people's heads. Here's the basic stuff you need to be doing to be a good cyber corporate citizen is probably worth the effort. Harold, do you agree? Uh, Yes and no. So so I, I came from the big companies. I was at IBM. I was at EMC. I've actually been on the other side of dealing with that. The reality is the government lacks the capability of implementing some of the controls that Matthew mentioned. They can't specify how you do two-factor. They can't determine how you protect endpoints. And the reality is we have a fairly porous environment. I look at critical infrastructure. Most of those tools are porous as could be because just looking at a firewall and looking at network traffic is a lot uh, a latter effect. Things have already happened by then. So now it's how long did it take for that latency to take effect? The average time is 287 days. Um, unless we can get to better trading um, 
a more uniform module. And, and to be honest, what I'd love to see is we start to look from a stock perspective at how they do cybersecurity rating it, because that affects real change in an organization. Instead, we have an actuarial process of how much security is enough, right? Well, if I get hit by this nation state, everybody's going to forgive me. I'm not going to spend as much money on the solution because guess what? It doesn't really matter. But if we had policies or real consequences for a company, I think you'd suddenly find out that we had a much better cybersecurity posture as a nation. Would that uh, require Congress to get more in the game and and pass some laws that uh, made those requirements real? I I think it would, but I also think the markets can drive that. So cyber insurance doesn't cover acts of war. Nation state attacks are not covered by your cyber insurance. So there are real consequences. We look at Colonial Pipeline that, that did have some material effects on the business. And I think the boards are going to have to come back and put pressure and say, I really want to understand how we're protecting our and making our investments in cybersecurity moving forward. Harold, let me let me go off script a little bit and, and ask you something that's been that's been in my head, at least for the last month or so. It, it seemed like, uh, you know, we all I, th- I think a lot of us completely misunderstood how this this invasion was going to happen and what the consequences would be. I think a lot of us expected Russia to overwhelm Ukraine both physically and in the cyber realm. Uh, and, and so we've seen, you know, we've been able to see how the Ukrainians have resisted physically the invasion with, with bravery and fortitude and terrific leadership and great communication. But in the cyber zone, it's a little harder to, to see what and, and I'm kind of continually amazed that Zelensky is able to continue to communicate, not just with his chain of command, but all of the Ukrainian people, and for that matter, the entire world. How is it that Russia, which has some cyber, capa- cyber attack capabilities, has allowed this to happen? I'm not sure their capabilities can stop what they don't know what's coming up and popping up fairly quickly. I think Elon Musk did a lot with Starlink, to be perfectly honest. Despite the threats of shooting down his satellites, he can pop up as many as he wants. It makes it really hard. I think um, you've got the borders which are connected. So that means he has to really um, encapsulate the country to stop some of those communications. Um, he did damage his own efforts because he took down the 3G towers, which was his secure communication outward. Um, strangely enough, that's not what Ukraine used, but, um, you know, as sophisticated as they may be, um, it was poorly thought out at bare minimum. And, and the reality is um, there's lots of ways and technology is adaptive to continue communications, et cetera. Thank you. Let's flip to our, our third big topic. Uh, and it's possible, folks, that the real linchpin of East-West conflict is not, in fact, Ukraine, but might be the otherwise fairly obscure nation of the Solomon Islands. It appears that Hanaria, which is the capital of the Solomon Islands, is turning away from its traditional ally, Australia, in favor of a security arrangement with the People's Republic of China. Uh, Sarah, I want to go to you first on this. How concerned should the United States be about this new development in the Solomon Islands? I think we should be pretty concerned. Um, This is another example of China moving pretty aggressively to exert its, its, its influence We've seen this a lot in in Africa, and in the last couple of years, we've seen both Kiribati and now Solomon Islands turn from an alliance with Taipei to Beijing. 
um, some reports and, and none of the, uh, you know, none of the actual money that's changing hands is um, corroborated as far as I understand, but at least some reports that I'm seeing show that Beijing offered somewhere in the neighborhood of $500 million to the Solomon Islands to kind of shift uh, shifted in, in its alliances. Uh, I, I think that we need to be concerned. Right now, the agreement calls for, um, you know, China to be able to bring police and military personnel to bear for a variety of circumstances. It also allows for Chinese warships uh, to have stopovers uh, in Solomon Islands to replenish and the like. Solomon Islands is, you know, very uh, clearly saying that this is not going to be a military base. Um, I think why this gives so much pause is that the Australians are already there with a historical strategic pact, um, having not just, you know, providing uh, security, but also aid. And now you've got, uh, you know, China moving in and China and, and Australia haven't had a, a great uh, history. It's been pretty acrimonious the last couple of years. Um, so I think that that's a signal. And I think that the U.S. should be watching closely. In fact, even before this draft agreement leaked, uh, Secretary Blinken was already talking about putting an embassy there. So folks, for, for those of you who didn't um, immediately identify the Solomon Islands and, and their strategic location, etc., they are a few hundred miles to the east of Papua New Guinea, which means that probably the biggest, closest big country to them is Australia. This is not exactly the nine dash line which is these uh, artificial islands created by the People's Republic of China in the South China Sea, which is which is fairly close to mainland China. Uh, this is this is a whole different um, kind of geographic zone for for China to have some influence. Harold, getting back to the issue at hand, what what's your what's your take on on the strategic value here of the Solomon Islands? So I think Sarah highlighted a really important point here. Uh, actually, two. Um, the first being that um, if you think about any military action, supply chain is important. And the Solomon Islands become a critical point. And that was emphasized in Russia and Ukraine. The challenge Russia is having around getting uh, fuel it highlights the importance of supply chain um, as a recurring theme in warfare. Um, but what, what is different is um, China is taking more of a honey approach than a vinegar approach. So um, Russia went in. They were aggressive. They didn't count on insurgency. Um, China's approach is, hi, we're going to give you police support. We're going to give you military support. They just shipped over a whole bunch of weapons over there, presumably for training. Um, what, uh, Sarah highlighted Africa, and that was actually, oddly enough, a strategy they took before. So this is not a new thing. They're trying to do the same thing in South America. So the reality is um, this notion of befriending people and building stronger and stronger alliances um, it's a strategy that China successfully utilized, and they learn from other people's mistakes. That's the one thing you can count on the Chinese. They do learn. They watch what somebody else does, and they learn, and they copy it. And I think the Solomon Islands are a prime example of that. Matthew, let's accelerate the blame game here a little bit. Uh, will Joe Biden go down as the, as the man who lost the Pacific to the Chinese? Um, I don't think so. But I think unless there's a course correction in the administration, he'll go down 
along with a chain of presidents before him, of folks that thought you could either turn inward and focus on domestic agenda, um, or you hear things like the pivot to Asia as if China's only going to operate within the South China Sea and the, and the Japanese Sea. Um, and so if he doesn't adjust, you know, he or historians will figure out that America you know, went to sleep for about 30 years while China was playing a global game, which is Harold and Sarah pointed out, you know, China's got a full-on base in Djibouti. China's working to build a full-on military base in the Solomon Islands. China is mimicking what the U.S. did, which is to have a global footprint, a chain of allies, and the ability to project power in any region of the world. And so to the extent that people in the Republican Party or the Democrat Party think, well, we need to pivot to Asia, my response is we need to pivot to the world and address China wherever it's showing up, which is all over the world, Latin America, Africa, uh, even Europe, uh, and then throughout Asia and the the South Pacific. All excellent points. I I will just add that evidently uh, Solomon Islands has some excellent uh, scuba diving uh, resources. And so we would not want to lose those to the communists. Um, All right. Uh, we're near the end of the podcast. Let's uh, eat, let's go around the horn and talk about the issue that each of us is following that may not necessarily be in the headlines. I am happy to go first this week. Uh, this uh, fella uh, that I, I once met at a Washington dinner, Paul Recessa Bagina, who was the hero of the movie Hotel Rwanda, uh, was just sentenced in uh, his home country of Rwanda to 25 years in jail again. Uh, for political activities. He was kidnapped by the Rwandan government, uh, taken against his will back to Rwanda. He was put on a sham trial. Uh, He's now, looks like, going to spend a very long time in prison unless he is given humanitarian release. His uh, The the legal process by which he was uh, jailed has been criticized by international lawyer groups, by the United Nations, by George Clooney's human rights organization, and on and on and on. It is a travesty of justice. This is a man who was a hero. He saved uh, over 1,200 people during the genocide in 1994 in Rwanda. He's a very modest man, uh, but he is he is really the best of us. And uh, there ought to be more international outrage about what is happening to this, uh, to this hero, frankly. Uh, Matthew, over to you. I'm not sure that my story completely qualifies. It's, it's, it's in the headlines, but it it, what would normally be front page news is like page nine news because of the Ukraine and other events. And that is the summit that took place in the Negev Desert in Israel, where the Israelis hosted foreign ministers from Bahrain, from Egypt, and from the UAE. Um, and that's pretty remarkable that you've got Arab leaders coming to Israel to sit down with the Israelis to figure out what regional security should look like for the Middle East. Um and it's just remarkable for a whole variety of reasons, things that we would have never imagined five, 10 years ago. Um, I also do worry a little bit, though, that um, some of this activity is because the U.S. in some ways has abdicated its traditional role in the Middle East. And so it's sort of they're they're coming together because they're not seeing any leadership from Washington. And so I hope we can re-engage in a more effective way. I know Secretary Blinken was at the sort of the tail end of the summit. Um, but I think that's an important development. And I think the Saudis are right behind in terms of really engaging with Israel, um, you know, going forward. And that's pretty remarkable from a historical perspective. Harold. I think I'm caught up on the Finland-Sweden 
discussion of joining NATO and what the impacts that are going to be in the Ukraine and Russia and the global world. But uh, I think it's a great thing. But I'm I'm also concerned on how does Putin respond and and how does China respond even to some extent as they start to lose ground. I'm I'm told by friends in in my homeland there that uh, if if. Sweden goes, Finland will come with them. If Finland goes, Sweden will go with, they'll, they'll come in as a, as a, a Scandinavian, uh, you know, tag team. Uh, all right, Sarah, bring us home. Okay, well, I'm following the latest uh, invocation of the Defense Production Act, uh, which came last week. Uh, and this concerns uh, increasing domestic production for critical minerals that support uh, large capacity batteries. So think lithium, nickel, cobalt, graphite, manganese. Uh, and this is uh, this is not just to sh- shore up our own supply, but it's also a geopolitical dimension because, of course, right now, most of this is coming from China or um, from China-sponsored mines elsewhere, uh, getting back to our earlier discussion on China's influence in Africa. Uh, so I, this is, this is going to be really important. Um, what's also uh, interesting about this is the executive order calls for feasibility studies and not just to figure out how we can increase our own mining and processing, but how do we do so with environmental sustainability, safety, and labor considerations in mind. And I think that those are going to be interesting trade-offs that are going to need to be made that weren't necessarily there in the past, but are there now. Uh, So I am keeping a close eye on this. All right. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. And I'll just note quickly that the whole issue of the Solomon Islands that we discussed today was because one of our faithful readers, Chuck Harper, asked us to discuss it. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude. Claude Jennings for editing, Savannah Algu and Cesar Muir for research assistance, and Ruth Joe for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. 